We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. And we're reading this morning uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Concluding a three-part series that we're on about coming alive in Christ. Next week we're going to start another three-part series uh, dealing with the next 15 verses or so. Um, on tearing down the walls, and we'll be talking about how Christ restores relationships um, in our life. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, the relationship between races, the relationship between siblings and parents and children and whatnot. So know that that's coming. The passage says this, But because of his great love for us, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. There's that word dead again. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is, the, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Lord, your word is just uh, so precious. It's, Lord, what tells us the truth, even when our experience and our feelings and our culture and our senses lie. Your word tells the truth. Lord, I pray that your word would have a priority in our life that nothing else rivals. And we could hear these words as being true, however they may uh, seem to us not to be. And Lord, we're very aware that, that your word has power and has energy and transforms us only when... Only when um, your spirit is there making it so. And so, Lord, I pray that we could trust your spirit to do that this morning and uh, not, not words, not ideas, and not concepts, and not the way I put it together. Lord, your spirit has to uh, do that. And when your spirit's working, Lord, how it comes out isn't particularly important because you can use whatever is said to transform us. Confront us, Lord, with the truth. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. I want to talk about three things here in this passage this morning. Um, I want to talk about, first of all, God's riches, the riches of his mercy, and how he's, number one, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Number two, he's done that by grace through faith. And number three, the result of all that is that we are his workmanship. I think maybe the uh, most beautiful word in this whole passage is the word but. Talked about that last week. But, but God, who is rich in grace. The word but in Greek, as in English, it means that a, a, a transition is taking place. It means that what follows contrasts with what preceded. Now, what preceded, we talked about last week. 
It was kind of depressing on one level. It talked about how humanity is in a desperate situation. But the purpose of Paul talking about our desperate situation was not to get us depressed, but rather it was to augment the good news that's coming later after the but. What we saw last week is that what precedes the but of verse 4, if you read chapter verses 1 through 3, is, is, is God's prognosis of the human race, the human condition, the state that we are in. It's the doctor's diagnosis of where we're at. And it doesn't square with our own experience, maybe, but it is the truth. And the truth is that we are dead in sin. The truth, whether we feel it or not, whatever else we may think about ourselves, is that we as a race of people and we as individuals are lost. We're in a desperate situation. We are non-responsive to God on our own. We are incapable of resuscitating ourselves, putting ourselves back together. We are controlled by the enemy, verse 2 tells us. We think we're free, we think we're independent thinkers, but everyone who thinks that, who's thinking contrary to God's word, is really being influenced by and significantly controlled by the spirit of the age, Paul says, the, the principality and power of the air. We are, to a large degree, corpses, walking corpses, who are on a string by the enemy of our souls. And as such, Paul says, we are bullseye for God's wrath. Tough stuff. Our situation is desperate. All the more desperate because we don't believe that we're in a desperate situation. If a person's got brain cancer and knows that they're in a bad situation, but if the brain cancer has decayed so far that they've forgotten that they have brain cancer, they're in a far worse situation. And so is the human race. Or if there's a person who does evil deeds and knows he's doing evil deeds, he's an evil person. But if there's a person who's so far jaded that they don't even think their deeds are evil, they think their evil deeds are good, they're far worse than the first person. And that's exactly the situation of the human race. We are so far down the road, we've lost sight of, of God's glory, we've lost sight of God's holiness, we've downsized normality, and we've downsized decency, and we've downsized truth to such a degree that we think we're actually being pretty good Joes when in fact... The path that we're taking is destined for the garbage pin, what the Bible calls hell, Gehenna, the dump outside of Jerusalem. Desperate, desperate situation. And you never know it by looking around you, and yet that is the condition. Unresponsive to God, dead, walking corpses. But, Paul says, but God. But God who is rich in mercy. The word rich there means overflowing, filled up to the max and then some. Or more than, the minimal definition of rich here, Puseos would be uh, uh, having more than is necessary, having an abundance. God who has more than enough mercy looked down upon us. And instead of bringing the judgment that we were bringing upon ourselves, instead of letting that take its course, God had a very different response. And looking down, the God of this universe, God of the creator of all the stars, the magnificence of the creation... He looks down upon us, and instead of burning with anger, which he does towards the sin, he's moved by compassion and love towards the race of people. In fact, the idea, the, the word mercy would, would maybe lead God to do that much. But to say he's rich in mercy has this effect. It means that he's, he's got more than enough mercy necessary to look down upon this race of people and not bring judgment upon them. It'd be like, it'd be like if, I, if there was a person who was uh, caught in a burning car, Love might lead me to want to go in and risk my life and save them. 
But if I was rich in love, it would be like a no-brainer. I wouldn't even think about it. I would just do it because I've got more than enough love to lead me to lay down my life for that other person. That's the situation that God is in. God, it's a no-brainer for God. We need him, and he wants to give himself to us. But God, the contrast is incredible. In spite of our deadness, while we were yet dead in sin, while we were yet enemies of God, while we were yet at war with God, while we were yet wanting to be lords of our own life, God was moved by his incredible grace, by his incredible love, by his rich mercy to go to this extreme, to become one of us, to take upon himself on the cross our suffering and our pain and our death and to die, the one thing that would repulse God the most, to, to do this, to take upon himself the hell and the damnation and the garbage dump sort of atmosphere that we produce by our own deadness. God takes that upon himself. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who knew no sin, who was sinless, to be sin for us. An incredible response. I'd like someone to just show me any religion or any philosophy that has a view of God that even remotely holds a candle of that view of God. It's, it's a, a view of unthinkable love. And in doing all this, God gives us the one thing that we need, and that is life. Life. The text says that God raised us up with Christ Jesus and made us alive in Christ. He didn't love us so much that he wanted to make us walking corpses, unresponsive to him. He didn't come to give us a nice corpse religion where we'd look religious. He didn't come to give us a nice corpse behavior so we'd behave well. He didn't come to give us a nice corpse philosophy so that we'd think well. He didn't come to give us a bunch of, uh, of things to dress up the, the corpse, to make it look alive, to make it smell nice, maybe even to make it you know, talk or walk or what have you. What he did, he gave it, the corpses the one thing that they need most, and that is life. But it's not just life. It's not like he just gave us the life that we had lost through our sin. He gave us his own life. He gave us his own life. It says that he raised us up together with Christ Jesus. And the image again is that when God, as it were, dropped the hydrogen bomb of his eternal life into Christ Jesus, it exploded out and now touches everybody who clings on to him. And when he comes out of the grave, he takes with him all the people that are holding on to him. It's, it's one act. He gives life to Christ, raises him up, and then hanging on to him as a corollary of that, as a result of that, he raises us up. And so, believer, what we have in Christ Jesus is this, nothing less than this. God doesn't just give us life again so that we are capable of responding to him. He puts inside of us, he puts inside of us his own life. Ephesians 15 says that when God raised up Jesus Christ and set him up in glory, he, he made him, the second Adam, a life-breathing spirit. God breathes into life, into us, the life of Jesus Christ. It's abundant life. It's his own life. You have within you if you are a believer, and I have within me if I am a believer. A life that never began and a life that will never end and a life that's never been defeated and a life that is more than a conqueror because it's the life of the eternal God, the life of God Almighty. That's the kind of life he pours into us. The life of Jesus Christ is residing within us. Zoe life, the Bible calls it, abundant life, eternal life. So Paul says it's no longer I that lives, not spiritually, it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives within us. Can we get a picture of ourselves of, uh, that, where this is true? 
That the breath of Jesus Christ is our life. And the pulse of Jesus Christ is our pulse. And the joy of Jesus Christ is our joy. And the peace of Jesus Christ is, is his peace. Christ lives in us and Christ lives through us. That's the resurrection life that God pours out upon those who are dead in their transgressions. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. You give me your death and see what's a fair trade. Um, I'll give you my life. How's that? You buy that? That's what salvation's all about. He's made us alive in Jesus Christ. Now, how do you get this, this life in Jesus Christ? You get it in verse 8. Can you hear me swallow when I... He says this, For by grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. How do you receive this eternal life? How do us corpses become alive to God, responsive to God, where God's life is flowing through us? The answer is faith. Faith. Not faith plus something, just faith. The word faith in, in, in the original Greek doesn't mean just an intellectual belief, a belief that something is true. It, in, it includes that, of course, but it, it's much deeper than that. It's much richer than that. It literally means to trust, to put your trust into someone. So what Paul is saying is that the way we receive the life of Christ in us is by trusting Jesus Christ, period. When you trust that what God did for you is sufficient to do what needs to be done, it applies to you. Can you put your trust in this? But the work of the cross is complete and the work of the cross is sufficient to give us life, and nothing else is. You know, last week I used this analogy of us being on the Grand Canyon. Uh, so I hope most of you were here last week, because I'm not going to repeat all that, but we're on the Grand Canyon, and we're on this side, and God's on that side, and on that side is the glory of God, and the life of God, and the holiness of God, and that's where we got to get if we're going to be alive. And what religion does and what philosophy does is it tries to teach people how to jump far across the Grand Canyon to, ride it, to try to reach the other side on their own power. And what some religion and some philosophy does is it gives you a nice pogo stick or a technique or a prayer mechanism or what have you to try to, to, try to pogo stick to the other side. And they, can, they come up with some pretty impressive jumpers. I mean, there's people in this world whose, whose uh, self-imposed holiness makes me look like a sham. The Hindu guy wrapping himself up in barbed wire for seven years to mortify his flesh as a way of trying to make himself holy. I'm impressed. Everyone's impressed. But it falls short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter whether you fall one inch short of the other side of the Grand Canyon or five miles short of the Grand Canyon, you end up in the same fate. Well, that whole analogy of the fall brought a uh, not, not very profound analogy to, to my mind about, about this faith thing. Uh, I, do you remember the, uh, how many here people saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? It's, it was his third, third movie. All right. Well, I thought I'd preach about not going to movies. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if I ever started that, doing that, I'd lose all my analogies. I couldn't preach. But in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, he's looking for, uh, he's looking for the, because um, uh, that's where the Holy Grail is. And he has to pass all these tests. Remember all this? And, and, and he's got this map, and on this map it tells him little wise sayings, and he has to figure out the wise sayings, and then he'll know how to avoid the trap. Uh, okay, and that's the premise. And so he's, he's, you know, of course he's very smart as well as very brave and very good looking, so he's figuring out all these things and going, uh, you know. And then he comes to a point, remember this? He comes to a point where there's this cliff, there's a canyon, and the, the other side's about 80 yards away. 
And Indiana Jones looks around. Is there any place where he can, you know, do his uh, whip thing and maybe swing across? No. You know, can he, can he jump it? No, he, he's too smart. He knows he can't jump it. How is he going to get to the other side? Well, he reads his map, and the map says, only he, something like this, only he who lives by faith or walks by faith is worthy of the cup. And so Indiana Jones, being a very smart dude, he decides that he's just got to try to walk across this grand, this grand Canyon, this crevice. And so he takes a step. You know what? He doesn't fall to his death. It's, it's a bottomless pit, by the way. Um, he takes a step, and it's solid. But it doesn't. He looks like he's on thin air, and he takes another step, and another step, and he's on thin air. And below him is this ground. Turns out, and I don't know quite how they did this, but but uh, uh, it turns out that this this bridge is like it's painted like the bottom of a bottomless pit, so it blends in with the background. But actually, there's a solid bridge there, and he walks across the whole thing. That's walking by faith. Hallelujah. And here's the analogy. Every human heart that isn't... Well, there's some human hearts that are so far jaded they don't even know this much, but every human heart knows that there's an abyss we got to cross. And in this fallen condition, in this fallen condition, our natural inclination is to think that we've got to do something about it. Our natural inclination is to, is to try to jump it. Our natural inclination is to try to exercise, get our legs strong, and, and see how far we can go, or to grab onto a pogo stick. stick. There's a kind of security in that. And everything about our do-it-yourself kind of culture reinforces that. And a lot of times our own feelings reinforce that. But to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust in someone and in something outside of yourself to do the work for you. It means to step out and, and, and to believe and to affirm and to invite into the core of your being the truth that this whole thing depends on someone outside of yourself. You've got to trust him on this one. God can get you across the Grand Canyon. And the enemy comes in and says, no, look down, look down. There's a, there's, a, there's a giant gap here. He comes and accuses us. And our own natural fallen inclination says, oh, i got to do something to make sure that it's okay. But the gospel says, stop doing it. You cannot both, you cannot both be trusting in the work of the cross and trusting in your own pogo stick, stick jumping. Indiana Jones can't be both trying to jump across that canyon on his own and also walking on this bridge. You can't do them both. They're mutually incompatible. That's why Paul says either you believe by faith or you do it by good works, but you can't do it by both. You can't both be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and also be trusting in your ritual, your baptism, your church attendance, your good looks, your righteous deeds, your prayer life, or what have you. Those are all good things, and they flow out of faith. But it's faith, and faith alone, that saves you. Trusting in what Jesus did as being complete and having nothing to pogo stick jump on. You know, the ideal of faith, the paradigm of faith, is the thief on the cross, I think. Here's a guy who, who if, if, if ever there was a man who had nothing to jump on and nothing to run with to try to get across the Grand Canyon himself, this was him. He's, he's just maybe hours away from his death. He's crucified on the cross with Jesus Christ. We know from Matthew that at one point he himself was reviling the Lord because Matthew tells us that both thieves on the cross were, were, were mocking Jesus. But somehow there was a turn of, of heart in this man as he was approaching death. And he stops mocking the Lord, and at one point close to death he says, Lord, will you remember me when you go into paradise? He, he saw something he hadn't seen before. And I would have thought the Lord would have said, you know, I don't know, Probably you're, a little, you're suffocating there, so he wouldn't have said much, but, but he maybe would have thought this. You know, he's up there, and he would have said, yeah, right, right, as if. You know, uh, 
20 minutes ago, you're mocking me, and now you want me to remember you. You want me to save you. Yeah, nice try. You know, maybe next incarnation or something. Or, or at least maybe give them a little quiz here, like, well, you know, how, what's your life been like? You know, how good have you been? How holy have you been? Have you been a good Jew or have you been a good Gentile or, or something of that sort? But here the guy is being crucified for some crime he committed. He doesn't have a lot to brag about at this point in his life. Would you agree? The Lord says, today you shall be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross had the one thing that is necessary, and he couldn't pogo stick or jump across the Grand Canyon any better than, than, than the rest of us, probably worse. He had nothing to jump on, but he had that faith, and that faith was sufficient. He didn't have a lot of theological doctrine either, but he believed that what the Lord did on the cross was somehow, in some way, able to reconcile a dead walker like me with the all-holy God. And that's what faith is. And this is why this is such a big deal. Although there's a number of reasons why this is such a big deal. Number one, it's true. And it's always good to believe the truth. Number two, if you're trusting in your own pogo stick jumping, you'll never, ever have the assurance of your salvation. Because how, how do you know you pogo sticked enough? If this is what's giving you points with God, how much is enough? How can you be sure? How do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? How do you know what God's attitude towards you is? Maybe he wants twice that much. Maybe you're just falling one inch short. Talked to a man this last weekend at the men's retreat that I did. And this was his issue. He never could do enough, and he never was assured of his salvation. Living with that, you'll never be sure until you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Someone utterly outside of yourself that has nothing to do with your own works. A third reason, and the most important reason why this is so important, is what Paul tells us here in verse 5, I believe it is, that God set up this whole thing so that when all is said and done, it will be very clear to all beings throughout all eternity that everything was a matter of his grace and he did it for the praise of his glory God loves to show off the his beauty he loves to show off his love he loves to show off his grace and so the way he responds to this thing of human damnation the death walking that we're a part of is by devising a plan of salvation where he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. Salvation from beginning to end is a matter of God's grace, and he gets the credit. But if I think that my pogo stick jumping or my long jumping across the Grand Canyon contributed anything to this whole thing, then I can pat myself on the back. I can say, yeah, God, thanks a lot. You really helped me. You know, I couldn't have done it without you, but... Then again, I am really glad that I was smart enough to be a Christian or that I was good enough to be a Christian, not like Aunt Susie over there who's, who's a reprobate sinner. Even if God does 99% of it and I do 1%, that 1% is what made the difference. I would have fallen an inch short if it wasn't for good old me. Aren't I a nice person? Congratulations. You have something to stand on, something to boast with, which Paul says we must never have. In fact, get this. So much is this a matter of God's grace. I want us to really see this clearly. And, and Lord, Lord, right now, help me to say this as straight as I can so it really lands in a powerful way. So much is this a matter of God's glory that Paul says here in verse 8 that even our trust, even our faith that, that, that what Jesus Christ did was sufficient, even that is a gift from God. We are saved by grace through faith, and even that isn't, isn't of ourselves. It is a gift of God. We were dead in sins. We couldn't crank out faith on our own. We didn't have the smarts to do it. We didn't have the heart to do it. We didn't have the soul to do it. We didn't have the disposition to do it. 
That's not something we could just crank out. But God looks upon these death walkers, and not only does he do all the things about taking on himself, our death to give us life, but now he puts a trust, a faith inside of us so that everything, even the modicum of belief, the little bit of belief that we have, everything that we are and everything that we shall be from beginning to end is, is by God's grace and therefore it's all to his glory. If you're here this morning and, and, and you, you believe what I'm saying is true, that's because of God's grace in your life. If you had been left a death walker, you'd be mocking me right now. If you're here this morning and you have any hunger for God, any thirst for God, that is God's gift. By the Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told his disciples, no one can even come unto me unless the Father draws him. It's a gift of God. And so if you're here and you've got faith, that's God's grace. And if, and, and if you hunger for God, that's God's grace. And, and if you're moving towards Jesus Christ, that's God's grace. And if you're moving out of sin, that's God's grace. And if you have conviction for sin, that's God's grace. And if the word of God comes alive to you, that's God's grace. And if you experience his presence, that's God's grace. And if you, and if you are moved to go to church, that's God's grace. Praise God, so from beginning to end, it's God's grace. You get the point, I think you do. And therefore, it's all to God's glory. Everything we are, everything we ever shall be, from A to Z and everything in between, is the result of God's rich mercy and the result of God's grace. And so he gets all the glory. And it's a beautiful relationship. It goes against everything that our self-centered, narcissistic, humanistic culture teaches us. But there's something profoundly beautiful about realizing that you minus grace equals nothing. And therefore, it's all to God's glory. There's a beauty in that. And it's got to produce in us a heart of love and gratitude, profound gratitude. This is what rescued us out of the garbage heap, God's grace, and nothing but God's grace. Then there's the third thing that, the, that, that results from grace. Paul says here, we are his workmanship, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Under good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. We are God's workmanship, created to do good works. Now, one part of me when I read that, it feels like Paul just took back what he just gave. Uh, he's going to slip these good works in one way or another. Right. And so, yes, you're saved by, by, by grace, but, of course, it is expected, read the fine print, that you will behave in such and such a way if you really are a recipient of God's grace. And it's kind of like, you know, when you buy a car and, uh, or something, and they, there's a fine print, all of a sudden adds, you know, doubles the price or whatever. Of course, there are these uh, taxes and amenities or whatever they call them. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I got buzzers that go up when I read that. I also have this going on. I, when I th the very word good works, it, it reminds me of a, you know, a good deed doer. A good deed doer. And good deed doers, if you understand the picture that I have of good deed doers, they've always bored me. Uh, when I think of a good deed doer, I think of, uh, you know, some uh, 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 kind of nerdish sort of person who carries their Bible like this, you know, and, and he maybe has buck teeth and has cat glasses and slick back hair and, and always is wearing a straight black tie and kind of walks around here. I, you know, this is just my picture, okay? And, and uh, always is doing good things, helping people across the street. And, and there's something about the term, and I, you know, that's a caricature, but there's something about the term that it's like, oh, those kind of people, you know. I, I never got along with good deed doers. Me and Joe Balsam over there, we were pretty busy being around with the, 
uh, bad deed doers, weren't we? We were pretty bad deed doers ourselves. We go back, way back to high school. Have some interesting stories we could tell you, but we're not going to. Um, but, uh, and it's really cool to see, uh, you know, back then, who would have dreamt we'd be in a church together? You know, praise God. God's sense of humor. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just sort of a, and I think a lot of non-Christians have this view of, of, of the church, of the good deed doer society, uh, the, the Christian Boy Scouts of America. You know, we like to be nice, we like to be good, we like, you know, and, and you're not, kind of thing. And, and so a lot of people don't, including myself, don't feel good when there's an atmosphere of good deed doing. No, no, no. I'm going to come back on this, so don't be thinking like I'm saying go out and do bad things so that I'll feel good about myself or something like that. But if we look at this verse the way it's written, it is not only not boring, it's exciting and it's beautiful. The Lord, through Paul, says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The view here is that it's as we are God's workmanship and as we're being recreated in Christ Jesus that the good works naturally flow out. The word workmanship there is the word in Greek poema and we get the word poem from it. And you were wondering all this time why I call this sermon Poetry in Motion. In, in the ancient Greek culture, a, a, a poema was, was, it didn't just refer to a, a literary piece, though it could, but it referred to anything that a master artist would produce. And if he was a master artist and he wrote a poem, it would sound good. And if he was a master potter and he made a beautiful clay, it would look good. And if, it was, if he was a master craftsman and he made a tool, it would work good. But the emphasis here is not on the good works that we're supposed to do. The emphasis here is on that we are his workmanship. He's working on us. And that's why it says we are created. We don't create ourselves, but we are created in Christ Jesus. The thrust of this whole thing is this. As we put our trust in Christ Jesus... Part of that is trusting him enough to let him in on our lives, to let him do the good work in us that he wants to do. And when that happens, you know what? You find yourself being better, being a good deed doer. Christians are supposed to be good deed doers, but not as a way of refining ourselves, but as a result of being refined. Let me close by, by just sharing with you. I, I always try to be a little bit honest here, a little bit honest, mostly lies, but a little bit honest uh, in, in my... Uh, and, and I want to just share with you something, the, kind of what this looks like. What does that look like for God to work on us? And, and, and how do we lay aside time to let God work on us? One of the ways God works on us is by working on the deception that we've absorbed in our upbringing and in a, in a lot of different ways that keeps us from doing the good life that, that he's called us to, to live. And, and some of that sometimes means God working on memories. And uh, I have just in the last week gone through an experience I want to share with you. And it's a little illustration of how God can work on us to make us better. Um, a little background on this. For the last two weeks, I've been doing a men's retreat up, up north. I got in last night at 3 o'clock. I would have been here at 2, but I got stopped by a cop for speeding. And the Bible says obey the laws of the land, so don't have, don't have to remind me of that. So, All right, I deserved it. Okay, so... Um, but, but on the way up to this retreat last week, my wife had given me a tape. And it was a tape of James Dobson's Focus on the Family that dealt with ADHD children. Some of you know what that's about. ADHD children are attention deficit hyperactive disorder children. And, and our son's been diagnosed as having that. 
And it's a neurological condition. Uh, it means that you're very uh, energetic, uh, but it means that you have trouble controlling your energy. You tend to do things very spontaneously without thinking ahead. You can't stay focused on anything. They tend to be more creative than usual, but they, they can't really demonstrate it because they don't focus it. They tend to be brighter than average people, but they can't demonstrate it. They usually flunk out of school or have a lot of trouble because they can't, they can't go by the rules, the good deed doers. And so... I was listening to this to learn how to help my son, but something, and it did that. He had a panel of 12 people getting into the mind of an ADHD child, but what it really hit me was that this panel told my life story to a T. And a light, it was like a light went on. I'd never thought of myself like that. I always knew people said, you're hyper, but I, 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 you know, I, I, didn't, I never tagged on attention deficit disorder. And it was kind of predictable because almost always, if, you're, if your child is that, one of the parents has it. It's a genetic thing. And a light went on. And it just explains so much, so much about my, my younger years. You know, I was always, always in trouble. And I hardly ever knew why. I, I, and I honestly didn't know what, you know, I just assumed that I did something bad, but I never knew why. And, and that's pretty common for ADHD kids. They, they, you don't think of action and consequences. That takes way too much focus. You just do it, and then you get hit, but you don't put the two together. That's a bad way to grow up. One of the things that this, this reminded me of, and I'm still setting the context for just one sentence the Lord gave me last week that really was a part of his workman, in, workmanship in my life. One memory that I, I had, the Lord has dealt some with me. When I, when, I, when I have times of intimacy with the Lord, I just picture the Lord, and, and, and sometimes I remember things, and the Lord just sort of works on them. And one particular memory, I may have even shared it here, I don't know, but it was, uh, uh, I remember as a little kid, about five or six years old, I wrote on uh, uh, the, a wall in our house, with some crayon. I just drew these pictures, big pictures with these crayons, you know. I was so excited. I just got, I was like, whoa, look at this, you know. And then my stepmother caught me. And my stepmother was, uh, when it came to punishments, a little bit abusive. Uh, she, was a, she was abusive. And her idea of what appropriate punishment would be would, would be to have me lick uh, the crayon off this wall. And it was one of these, uh, like, stucco walls. It had these rough edges to it. And so she made me start to lick that off. And uh, um, I just remember, I don't know how long that that went on for, but I remember that uh, um, my tongue was really getting sore. I could taste blood, and I had all this wall plaster on my mouth. And I was crying and asking her to, to uh, please not let me make her do this, and she kept on making me do this. And the Lord had, at, at different times as I was just being with the Lord, you know, it, taking time out and enjoying his love towards me and letting him work. The Lord had done some really healing there by uh, coming down to me. I, I remember this, and, he, and, and one of the things he would do is he'd come down to me and, and just, you know, sit beside me, and, and, and he would cry over this because, see, that's, he's stripping away a corpse memory to, in order to give me life. He's given the little kid some life, that resurrection life. And, um, and so he would come down, and, and he, would, he would cry with me. And he would say something like, I, I, I wish this never had to happen to you. I'm really sorry that this happened. One time he, he just touched his uh, uh, hand to my, to my mouth and, and the swelling went away and, and the taste of blood and plaster went away. And then he had plaster and blood on his lips. And, and he says, we're gonna make this one better. Now, just stick with me, Greg, we're gonna get through this. What happened last week was just another little piece, another little bit of the workmanship. And it's just, God, it's, it's all 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, as we behold his glory, we're transformed into his glory. 
As we look at the Lord and let him show off his love, we become like his love. And that's the good deeds stuff. And last week, I, having this revelation of being ADHD as a kid, um, I, uh, uh, we, had, we, we had a quiet time at this, at this retreat. And uh, 15 minutes where we just put on some music, turned off the lights, and just dwelt with the Lord. And I immediately got this picture of little Greggy running in this field and doing hyperactive stuff, you know, just running around and just, you know, doing the stuff I did. You know, I was always alone playing out in the woods, but I would think of games to play. And I was throwing rocks or playing with some sticks or just doing a lot of crazy stuff, destroying stuff half the time. But the Lord just sat and, and he looked at that kid and, and, and he said, you know, isn't that energy incredible? I did that. And he was proud of it. You know, this is the stuff that drove the nuns crazy. But he said, I'm, I'm proud of that. Isn't that just beautiful? Look at the energy of that. The creativity. Look what he's doing with that stick. And we just watched that. And then the next thing I know, Jesus is there with me. He, he, he's, he's, he's playing with this little kid out in this field, jumping around. And this is a hyperactive Jesus. He's all hyper. He's with the kid. And he's just jumping up and down. And he's as hyper as I was. And he's thinking of things to do himself. And then, then he picks me up, and he kind of shakes me like, man, I love your energy. And then he says, let's go paint a wall. <laughs> and then the next scene is just him and me, and we got these crayons, and we got this paint, and there's this huge wall, and we are just going crazy on this stuff, and we're laughing and laughing and laughing. See, I'm becoming God's poem. I'm becoming God's poem. As he strips off, as he strips off the corpse things that I, I, I keep hanging on to, and he replaces them with his resurrection life, I become more and more like him. Do you think after an experience like that, you know, are you going to need to beat me up to want to follow him? No, I'm in love with this guy. And if he says, do this, Greg, he's got my heart. I'm, I'm going to follow. I'll, I'll probably fail at that. I know I will, but I'm going to follow. The good works come, but they come as we rest in the Lord and let him work on us. And we become his poem, poetry in motion. And poems of the Lord always sound good. It's a natural consequence of that. And even that, all of that, every bit of that, is a matter of God's grace. Praise God. Amen.